This is another iRaw podcast. Hello, I'm Emmy Lees, and welcome to the latest episode of Think Like a Vegan, a companion podcast to our book, also entitled Think Like a Vegan. Infighting. It's something people in the vegan verse complain about, mostly on social media. If this is something that you think about or you have encountered, you're absolutely not alone. Dr. Corey Lee Wren writes, Many activists bemoan the heavy divisions that have emerged within the non-human animal rights movement, specifically as it has developed and transformed over recent decades. So what do we mean by infighting? Is it something unique to the vegan and animal rights space? Should we be concerned about it? Does it benefit one group over another? And how should we engage with it, if at all? Or what might be some of its consequences, if any? We'll talk about those questions and more on today's episode on factionalism in the vegan movement. Delighted to welcome to the podcast Dr. Corey Lee Wren, who is a prolific writer and whose work and advocacy has tremendous breadth. She's a treasure trove of thought-provoking books, essays, and more. I highly recommend her website, CoreyLeeWren.com, and that's Wren with two N's. Welcome, Corey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Amy. Let me introduce you to Corey a little bit before we get into today's topic. She's a lecturer of sociology and co-director of the Center for the Study of Social and Political Movements at the University of Kent. She received her PhD in sociology from Colorado State University, co-founded the International Association of Vegan Sociologists, and is the founder of the Vegan Feminist Network. Among many other things... Dr. Wren is a member of the Vegan Society's Research Advisory Committee. She also hosts the Sociology and Animals podcast, has been published in several peer-reviewed academic journals, and has published a number of books, the latest of which is Animals in Irish Society. I'm currently reading that, and it's fascinating. Without getting into spoilers about Corey's talk today, I'll read this very brief excerpt from one of her essays on factionalism, which will hopefully set the stage. In the 1970s and 1980s, the movement has been divided between factions that advocate direct action and structural change, such as the infamous Animal Liberation Front and those who advocate institutional reform, such as the Humane Society of the United States. More recently, conflicts have emerged over aims to either reform or abolish non-human animal use. Rather than seeing these divisions as healthy growing pains, they are most often viewed as a serious liability. Indeed, many movement leaders point specifically to factionalism as primary reason for limited movement success. With that, Corey, the floor is yours. Great. Well, thank you for introducing me. I really appreciate it. Um, so I thought that I would start out talking about this topic, just giving a little bit of personal background, like why, why, why am I even interested in this? So I think like a lot of academics in the study of the animal rights movement or anti-speciesism, uh, I came from an activist, activist background. 
So I, <laughs> I guess I've been, I'm, I'm almost 40 now. And I got started in, when I started university when I was about 17. And I immediately fell into an animal rights club at the, at Virginia Tech when I was doing my undergrad. And I remember at the time just kind of going with the flow. I was, it was brand new to me. I was learning about um, issues, learning about t- activism but then as my time went on with this group, I started to get more confidence. And then like it's very, uh, very predictable with a lot of student groups, there's a lot of turnover. And I suddenly found myself in a leadership position. And then when I was in graduate school, I became the president. So by that point, I started to be reading a lot more about this and thinking more strategically about what's the best use of our time. And then after a few years of doing the activism, you start to get an idea of you know, the, the political atmosphere, engaging with the public, engaging with your university and engaging with other activists. And one of the things that also really inspired me at that time was, mind you, like I said, I'm about 40 years old now. So uh, I came, when I grew up, all I had was, you know, you wrote to PETA and PETA gave you information. I didn't have the internet. By the time I'm now like a, a leader in the animal rights group at my university, we have the internet and I'm able to become part of a larger activist community. So I think this is key for today's conversation is that now a lot of the conversations we're having are with a larger body of people and there's a lot of more a lot more room for diverse positions. So I actually started subscribing to a podcast called uh, Vegan Freaks which was run by a sociologist and um, Bob Torres, I think his partner taught Spanish, Jenna. Uh, it's now defunct, but at the time that was like the vegan podcast. This was right when podcasts were coming into like becoming popular. And so everybody listened to it. But what made it unique is that Bob was actually quite, because he was a sociologist, probably quite radical in his animal rights ideology. And so I learned a lot of the nuance of animal rights theory and the theories of mobilization through listening to that, not just through his own um, talks that he would put on these podcasts, but he would bring in activists from throughout the movement. He would do a lot of critiquing at the beginning of the podcast about um, so-called successes in the movement. And for the first time, I started to realize just because it has been that way does not mean that is the best way or the only way to do animal rights. And little did I know that this is a long going kind of um, issue with the animal rights movement is this debate over efficacy, what works and what doesn't. And so anyway, I got I got really uh, into this new abolitionist faction, this thinking about like welfare reforms. Actually, wow, lo and behold, tend to don't really they tend not to really help other animals. It tends to stream streamline speciesist industries it helps the public to feel better about participating in these speciesist industries and sometimes actually it makes it worse. So that at the time, I remember PETA had just come out with this report. They were trying to work with some company to improve welfare. But in the PETA report, it actually said, this will allow you to kill more animals and you'll make more money. I said, all right, where is the logic here? So at that time, so now we're talking about you know the late 2000s, uh, that first decade of the 2000s. And the abolitionist faction, which had actually been around, uh, like Tom Reagan really was a forerunner for this kind of um, factional thinking, had been around since the 1990s. But by the point, this point in the late, to, to the, getting close to 2010, now a lot of people had internet access and they're really being exposed to these new ideas. Whereas before, as I will explain from my research, 
that really that these alternate ideas, these other these radical approaches, tend to be very policed in um, in publications that came out of the animal rights movement. So that's where I came from. I had this new abolitionist sort of training, and I'm a sociologist in training as well. And then I go back to my to my club and I say, all right, we need to not be participating in these welfare reform campaigns. They're really ineffectual. And for instance, there was a university nearby that wanted to collaborate with us to get them to switch to cage-free eggs. And I said, well, we're a vegan club. We're not going to waste our time for cage-free eggs. We'll help you get rid of the eggs, but we're not going to do the cage-free eggs. And I remember then that the um, the guy who was vice president at the time, he, he would argue with me about that. He's like, well, this is more realistic and this is how PETA has done it. And then I started to think about all the training, actually, because we were actually in Virginia. So Virginia, was, Virginia Tech was actually about a three-hour drive from D.C., which at the time, that's where a lot of these nonprofits headquarters were located. And so like Erica Meyer from Compassion Over Killing would come down to talk. Uh, people from PETA would come down to talk. And, and they were basically, what they were doing is grooming, if I dare say, a generation of student activists to align with their perspective on how to do animal rights. But what we didn't realize at the time was that also in this point in the animal rights movement, it was a dramatic transition in our structure, not just because we have social media access and the internet, but because starting in the late 1980s, really taking off in the 1990s and solidifying by the turn of the century, the animal rights movement had professionalized. It was no longer this grassroots movement that we once had where everybody has democratic access to how we run the movement and our politics and our theories and our ethics and all that, those days are gone. Now we have these large nonprofits that are run by a handful of people who are beholden to funders who are now determining what our tactics will be. So this was one of the major elements of the abolitionist sort of critique in that time was that, all right, who are we actually serving here? Are you serving industries? Are you serving the animals? Are you serving these, these foundations that are being fed by large corporate industries? Who are we actually serving here? So one of the things about factionalism that I wanted to talk about in, in today is that this factionalism is not just about this infighting. It's something larger. There's a larger kind of structure that's influencing us, what's going on there. So that's where I came from. I was really frustrated that I was learning about this new stuff and then people in my own activist collective could not think critically about it. I realized they were being groomed by these larger nonprofits. And so it's time to actually look up at the source. Why are the non what are the nonprofits doing and how are they um, structuring, if you will, uh, our discourse? So before we take a break, I just want to give a quick uh, historical, I'll tell you about the present po politics, but just a quick histo history of the animal rights movement before we get into what's happening now. So factionalism, by the way, is not new to this movement, nor is it unique to this movement. It is endemic to all social movements. So when people say, gosh, I really wish we could all just get along, no infighting, I see this all the time. I just joined a new Facebook group for um, organizing activists in the UK last week, and it was like a rule before you even join, no infighting, which I think is a crying shame, and not just a crying shame, but completely unrealistic, magical thinking, because social movements always have been about factional disagreement. That is how we function. That is how we grow. So just that little bit of historical background, like so from the beginning, when we're looking at, at least in the West, we had animal rights activists, if you could call them that. A lot of times they were just interested in improving welfare 
And then you had people who were in the vegetarian movement and not always did those, those two overlap. So you have people who are spending their whole life trying to help think, help the situation for animals like anti-vivisectionists, people who are inter- intervening on dogs and cats who are being um, horribly, horribly killed by cities. Like for instance, in New York, in New York city, they round up dogs and cats and just drown them in the river. So activists kind of emerged out of that and said, right, we need to take advantage or, or take control over the situation and figure out more um, humane ways to handle it. So you have people who are dedicated to, to ending animal suffering in that way, or at least mitigating that animal suffering, and then turning right around and eating animals and not seeing anything wrong with that whatsoever at all. And that would continue. That continued up until really the 1970s or 80s when people started to question that. So then you also had, um, as we move in past the world war years, now you're moving into an era where you still have groups like the RSPCA that are saying hunting is okay. <laughs> you have some organizations that refuse to take a stance on vivisection. Hence, the Humane Society of the United States was founded because they wanted to take a stand against vivisection and other organiz- organizations weren't doing it. Also, in, in the war years, it's uh, right in the middle of the war years, the Vegan Society emerged. Vegans had been around for a while. Vegans have been uh, active in like entering the debate with the British Vegetarian Society since the turn of the uh, the, uh, the 20th century. And finally, in the 1930s and the 1940s, like y'all need to get out. You need to go do your own thing. And so, 1944, vegan the Vegan Society was formed out of a factional disagreement. So, the Humane Society of the United States, the largest animal welfare organization in the world, came out of factional disagreement. We have uh, the Vegan Society coming out of factional disagreement. And then also feminists. Feminists were coming back in the 1970s and 80s saying that actually we need to have our own factional kind of fissure here because these gender issues are not being um, recognized. So historically, from the whole beginning of the animal rights movement, you had major, major, major disagreements and, and debates. And if we didn't have that, we might to this day still have animal rights activists eating animals. We might still have animal rights activists killing healthy dogs and cats, which we still do, by the way, but now at least it's challenged, thanks to the work of the no-kill movement. We might still have animal rights activists saying it's okay to hunt. (laughs) And so now that brings us up to date where we have one of the uh, the current debates now, the abolitionist in the welfare faction, which is probably the one that gets the most attention, but also I would say the feminist faction that has really seen a resurgence especially after the Me Too movement and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. So let's take a break there and then we'll come back and talk about like what's going on with this new factional sort of uh, landscape. Time for our musical interlude, after which we'll hear more from Corey. Here's Clouds on the Orongorongos by Matthew Gersternberger.
We're back for the second part of Dr. Corey Lee Wren's On Factionalism in the Vegan Movement. So this brings us now to the second wave of the animal rights movement, which I would say really kind of got its spark in the late 1960s with the work of the Oxford group, Peter Singer, um, and uh, uh, Richard Ryder, Bridget Brophy. There's a bunch of people who are doing this. Uh, Ruth Harrison, not just men, women as well. So with their work, we see a new a resurgence in interest in more radical animal rights theory, where now you see for the first time, it's not enough that we want to reduce suffering. We also want to you know, live that and not actually not eat animals, <laughs> not participate in it. So now we see that, that that long legacy of disagreement from the earlier century, from the 1800s and the early part of the 20th century, now we're starting to see, okay, that has made a difference. So the feminist movement, the fe- for, for instance, fem- Feminist for Animal Rights, they started an organization in 1980, I believe, and they went all the way up until 2000. So you're starting to see a more radical grassroots type of social movement space. A lot of these organizations were doing uh, direct activism, street demonstrations, groups like PETA, groups like Compassion Ever Killing, which I, I, I think they've changed their name now to something more generic, which I can't remember right now. But at the time, they were like student organizations. They went out and they did street, street protests. They like went toe-to-toe with police officers. They were happy to get arrested. They celebrated it. We had the Animal Liberation Front that was seeing a, its heyday in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And so it was a much, much different movement space then. However, alongside that in the background, some of these older organizations that have been around for a while. They're professionalized. They're hanging in there. They're more institutionalized. And that type of institutionalization is now starting to look a lot more interesting or enticing, if you will. So nonprofitization, I should for people who I'm throwing a lot of jargon around here, but when we talk about professionalization, that basically means you turn an activist collective into a professional enterprise. Usually what we mean by that is you become a nonprofit, a registered charity. And so what happens with that is that you have to become completely transparent to the state. So, for instance, in the United States, you fill out a, a, a non-nandi form, I believe it is, which uh, in, in my book, Pro, uh, Piecemeal Protests, a lot of the data that I ca- I've gathered actually came from these transparent documents. But in the documents, if you look at that, they say, here's how much money I have. Here's where my money is coming from. Here's where our money is going. And basically, here's a complete transparent like look into our, our war chest. And so any kind of like resistance to the state that they may have been able to say they had is now gone. Now it's just another money-making enterprise. Even though it's not for profit, it's still, it's, they, they amass huge amounts of wealth and they invest that wealth. And so they are a major economic sector. So why do this? What's the incentive here? Well, thinking about like all the stuff I just talked about with the Animal Liberation Front, people are now going to jail. We have the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act that comes into place in 2006, now making effective people effectively terrorists if they interfere with government um, and just animal industries. And people who are getting arrested just for doing street protests, it's, it's grimy work, it's dangerous work, it's risky work. And then also, don't forget back in the war years when that the animal rights movement and other social movements, when these great issues come up, these great crises come up, a lot of organizations or collectives, animal rights collectives, would not be able to survive that. So actually, becoming a professional entity also reduces quite a lot of risk. It gives you a lot more resilience And so there's a lot of ups and downs with cultural support and political support for social movements. And so having a professional entity becoming a registered charity creates an element of predictability and safety. 
But what's also going on here in the 1980s is we have a new neoliberal type of political, cultural, economic world that we're living in. And so this rationalization that we've been applying to all elements of our society, lo and behold, now are being applied to our social movement. So the language I was using there about being more less risky, more secure, it's all about that uh, efficiency, effectiveness. And this only amplifies as we move on into the 21st century. So what is happening here is that we have a larger political economic structure that's influencing, influencing this. So this is what I want to clarify because when we talk about factionalism, especially as activists, and we're in this, I mean, when I was when I was an activist and abolitionist uh, as, before I became a full time academic, like this took up so much of my time and my colleagues' time, like laying out why I am an abolitionist and why this is better than the standard traditional welfare way. So much work, so much effort was not actually interacting with the public, but interacting with the animal rights movement. And so for me, I think this is a major major area of our where we expend our energy and our resources, and it is important that we recognize. This is systemic. It's not about individuals because that's what I would often see. Oh, that person is just really complaining all the time. That person wants to gossip. That person is egotistical. I get to see that one thrown out a lot. It's not about individual people. This is something that is systemic to social movement. So we need to be thinking about if it's here, if it's part of social movement life, how do we understand it and negotiate with it? So the difference now, in the when we're now in the 21st century, is that we have this nonprofit sector that has amassed so much power and has so much wealth. Actually, what's happening is that there's a lot of compromise that comes with that. And that compromise is what is actually fueling factionalism. But what happens is that the nonprofit organizations, with all their power, their hegemonic control over the movement, can actually frame radicals as being the deviants, the naysayers, when in fact, it's their compromised um, choices, these institutional decisions that they're making, that's actually fueling the radical kind of talk back, the speaking back to it, Keely. So uh, what I did in my book, Peacemail Protests, is I actually wanted to see what happened. I looked at 40 years of animal rights activism, starting in the 1980s, and then moving across this, it's basically the end of the second wave and into the third wave. Now where we have a social movement space that has been pr pretty much professionalized. And I noticed that as we entered that into that phase, especially in the late, like I think 1996, if anyone is interested or was alive then and can remember, 1996 was such a pivotal point because that is really at the cusp where the movement has professionalized so we had in 1990, this is a wonderful example, by the way, in 1990, there was an animal rights march in, in D.C. And something like 25, 30,000 people showed up. It was a phenomenal gathering, like a, no other gathering for animal rights had ever happened in the United States, 1990. Now, a few years later, they tried to replicate that. But by then, all these major organizations had professionalized, and now we're trying to tamper down the radical claims making. Let's not use rights language. Let's talk about animal protection, like trying to like water it down. And there was so much infighting about that, about how this is selling out the animals that actually it completely ruined this, this second march. Only about 3,000 people showed up, which is like nothing for Washington, D.C., right? So that just goes to show it was a major, major divisive sort of situation in the 1990s. But in 1996, we have the release of Nathan Winograd's book, on the no-kill movement. 
1996, we have Gary Francione's book called uh, Rain Without Thunder, which is a critique of the like the welfare approach that these organizations are using. The feminists are hard at work, like a lot of Carol Adams' stuff is coming out at that time. So there's a lot of really uh, radical sort of um, responses that are happening to this changed face of the social movement. But what is interesting there was I also wanted to see how is the so how are the professionalized organizations handling that? What they're noticing is, well, first off, the first thing they do is they just don't acknowledge them at all, because that's one of the greatest shows of power. If it's a threat to your power, and, and you know you might have to deal with it, but they don't see the radicals as a threat to their power, so they just ignore them. But of course, this keeps gathering momentum and gathering momentum. So then, if they do respond to the radicals. You know, they'll disparage them. Like vegan outreach is one that like spent so much time disparaging um, the abolitionists and, and the vegans, by the way. The vegan vegan um, outreach was not really a vegan organization, um, at least at the time. I think they've changed leadership now and that may be different. But then the other thing that they would do is that they would recognize that actually a lot of the efforts of the grassroots, the language that they were using, the tactics that they were using were seen as more authentic and actually resonated with the public and so then what would happen is they start to actually mine those symbols and mimic them and repackage them in a way that is actually congruent with their compromised position. It's really bizarre. In my book, I have an example like Farm, which is like one of the largest animal rights groups in the U.S. and they host the animal rights conference each year. Farm had, it was just one of the most, <laughs> you know, it's very, very well. And they, that, this has changed, by the way. It's kind of a success story. It's definitely gotten a little bit more radical and abolitionist since I did this data collection. But at the time, they were super, super welfare reform. But they would use the language, like the imagery of like um, anim animal liberation front people and say, yeah, join our street team. And they would use typeface that looked like somebody did a home typewriter, even though this is like a major nonprofit organization that has tons of money to support like a regular <laughs> printed out thing. PETA did the same thing. PETA had a spread in one of their 1990s magazines that says, meet our grassroots team. And by that time, PETA was like a multi-million dollar nonprofit, like had, with a huge headquarters in Norfolk, Virginia. And it's like grassroots, my ass. It was not grassroots at all, right? So this is what they would do. They would kind of take these things that had resonance with the public and resonance with the activist community and like rework them to say, actually, that's what we're doing. So that was that's pretty that's pretty upsetting as well um, because really the thing with these radical activists is that by becoming a radical you're siphoning you're cutting off from actually cutting yourself off from all the networking and the power and the wealth that comes along with like aligning with the nonprofits. So most collectives actually will say I I want to go that way because we've been raised in a capitalist society that growth is better, that more money is going to give us a better chance. And that has only gotten even worse since my book is published because now there's the whole like ph philosophical, like, um, ethic. What's, I can't remember what it's called. What is it called? I mean, what, it's uh, effective altruism. That's yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> effective, yeah, it's only gotten worse since I've published my book. Right. So the radicals are actually in a very precarious situation because they've cut themselves off from that. And they they don't have the big headquarters in Norfolk or D.C. in order to rally monies and all this sort of stuff. And what happens also is that these big collectives like um, Farm does, that does the animal rights conference every year will actively say no radicals are allowed to come. And this happens in other it happens in uh, other conferences as well. Radicals can't come. So not only do you have no platform and no voice, but you can't even come and like sell your T-shirts and make a few bucks. So you can go make your placards and, your, and host your websites and stuff. So they're effectively trying to starve out these radicals. 
So the radicals, the only thing they have in their favor that helps them to like to, to mobilize resources and reach people is their truth telling because <laughs> they don't have to put on a lie. They're not beholden to these large foundations for the next grant that's going to get uh, keep the, the lights on and, and keep your staff paid. They can tell the truth and say this is going to be more effective. And this, these reductionist welfare kind of lines that you're feeding people, it's not based in reality. So that's what radicals have, and that's what they should hold on to. But unfortunately, now a lot of the nonprofits will come and even take that and skew it and, and try to apply it to themselves um, very dishonestly, I'm afraid to say. But the last bit I want to say here, and then I'm going to wrap it up, but this seems very doom and gloom. But again, I've been, you know, like I said, I've been in the movement for, what, 25 years, and I've done this big study over the past 40, 50 years of the movement. And what I can say is, although we definitely see this kind of horrific hegemonic, like, control over our radicals is that actually radicals can, with persistence, have an impact on the movement. Like I said at the beginning, I'm I'm an animal rights activist and a vegan. If this was 30 years ago, I'd probably just be an animal rights activist, maybe a vegetarian, maybe not, right? So we, we wouldn't have a movement that thinks, you know, maybe gassing and injecting dogs and cats that are perfectly healthy and adoptable is the best thing for animals. Maybe we should look at the way we structure our adoption process in in these shelters. That wouldn't be around today if it weren't for factionalism. That's now much more mainstream. We now have tons and tons of no-kill shelters and, in fact, no-kill cities. And we also would have, you know, we, we wouldn't have today, like the, the HSUS, of course, is very, very welfareist, but at least they're anti-vivisection if it weren't for the vivisection debate and so on and so forth. But more recently, I did hint, hint at it with, uh, with Farm. I think Farm is a really interesting example. It's not only was it a welfarist organization, but it was actively anti-radical. Uh, it actively said, Nathan Winograd, you're not allowed to participate. Gary Francione, you're not allowed to participate. I think Gary Francione did participate one year in like 2013. And he's got a bad attitude, which he's you know famous for. And they claimed you can't come again because of that. But really, it was because it was an abolitionist position, I think. And Nathan Winograd, yeah, as well. Like they started putting all these stipulations on, like, well, you can't criticize um, kill shelters if you come on to talk. Well, that's just, that's what he does. That's his bread, bread and vegan butters. <laughs> but anyway, Farm was really, really bad. But now I've seen it recently. Farm is starting to adopt more feminist principles. It's starting to be a little bit more critical of welfareism. And I've also seen other organizations like uh, Karen Davis's uh, United Poultry Concerns. She used to be quite welfareist. And I know starting in the 1990s, I started to see she was being a bit more supportive of abolitionist positions. And like I said, uh, vegan outreach now has different leadership. They're definitely way more feminist and intersectional than they ever were. So there's there can be change. And I think it's just really important for people in the movement to, to number one, realize that factionalism is a part of movements and you cannot escape it. You can't hide it. You can't stamp it down. And so number two, the best thing to do is harness it and think about what is the actual role of this um, discourse, this discourse of disagreement, and take it seriously. You might not agree, agree with it, but like have to think, look look at the legacy of this movement and so many things that we thought were preposterous. What do you mean go vegan? <laughs> what do you mean stop hunting? <laughs> what do you mean stop like gassing dogs and cats? Things that we thought were preposterous at one time are now standard in our animal rights movement so I think we need to be a bit open now to this, to the possibility of debate and an imagination for alternatives and realize that a lot of the things that we take for granted as the best way, the most efficient way, the most rational way have been conditioned into us 
from 20, 30 years of these nonprofits who have actively groomed our movement and actively silenced and villainized uh, radicals. So that would be my plea to folks listening today is, you know, one of the, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to the Vegan Society. Like, this is not really the case anymore. The Vegan Society used to have open space in its journal, in its magazine, its quarterly magazine, for people to debate stuff in the back of it. And that went on until it started to really professionalize um, uh, 10, 20 years ago. Today, though, it's like the only major animal rights organization with democratic access. So I could go to the annual meeting and have a say. And I think that is so critical. And it would be wonderful if more and more organizations went back to that, reverted to that. In the meantime, what do we have? We have social media because they can't stop me from getting on the internet and running my mouth, right? <laughs> so I'll leave it there. Thanks, Emmy. No, thank you so much, Corey. Um, this was this was fantastic. I mean, I love the the historical context, and I love also the 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 practical context. And uh, um, you know, it was one of the things that we do here all the time. Like, oh, you know, we're arguing and infighting and so on. And it's like, well, no, we're discussing, and mm-hmm. and that's that's fine. And sometimes I think we can get lost in that in in the on the internet when we're just going back and forth in comments. But I think the internet is actually very helpful when you can um, you can write as whatever whatever you need to write, whatever it is that you need, whatever thoughts you need to get out there more than or beyond social media. Just like on 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 your website that you have loads and loads of essays on a variety of different topics. I think that's extremely important, and that's actually extremely dr- democratic as well because. Your essays are available to anybody who wants to say, "Oh, wait a second, wow, let me see what else Corey thinks about, it. and I want to hear about uh, about about this topic, irrespective of whether I agree with you or not." You can read about it, and they're all very accessible. And I think that's that's extremely important. And the the other thing you said um, about doing research and looking at the financial statements of uh, of charities and and you can do the same in the UK some uh, some of the animal rights groups are charities and some of them are not they're just regular companies but you can go to the um, charity commission and you can look at the financial statements and you can see where the money's being sent spent rather and uh, where it comes from and you can also go to the company's house and just put in the company name and see where they're spending the money and how much they're spending in a variety of different areas. And I find, I mean, I do it, but I'm a nerd. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's enlightening because you see, oh, wait a second. So you're spending all this money on this when when your mission should be that. So it's all, it's all very interesting. Um, before we go, uh, where can people follow your work other than your, uh, uh, your website, obviously, or tell us about your website some more? And do you have any additional product projects you would like to promote? Oh boy. Oof. Okay. Well, yeah, definitely. A lot of projects. <laughs> <laughs> Can't we stop? Um, I would say the best landing point would definitely be my website, CoreyLeeRen.com. But if you want to keep up with my work, because I know I, I've populated that website for 10 years and it's full of all kinds of stuff. But if you want to keep up with my work in a more approachable way, I would say sign up to my newsletter. I have a newsletter that comes out um, quarterly. And I try to summarize um updates and what's going on with my research, like podcasts like this one, people can listen to other interviews as they come through. Uh, and I do yeah, also update on like local activism that I've been involved in. So I say to definitely check out the, the, the newsletter, but they also, 
I'm on uh, Instagram. Instagram is my personal account that I've made open. So you can see me as a person, not just some like talking head. So lots of pictures of dogs and cats. Yeah, and I also have a Facebook author page where I try to update that regularly. So I'm, I'm everywhere. I'm I'm taking advantage of social media as much as possible. <laughs> and that's that's fantastic. And and actually, do you want to tell us about what's going on at the University of Kent right now? With the um, there was a uh, a move uh, and a vote, a very popular vote, in fact, by the students to. Um, ask the student union to cater only plant-based foods. And that happened in December, but yet there there's some trouble a-brewing. Yeah, and I don't know how much this is like official, but I, I'm telling it because I, I think it's really dirty, rotten. So yeah, this is a wonderful example of like the power of grassroots campaigning. It, it was it's a, it's a campaign called Plant-Based Unis. And it is run by Animal Rebellion, which I'm sure is a registered charity, but it's a small, like, it's definitely like in the style of the 1990s. It's like a grassroots type of organization. But anyway, it's really, really intriguing. What they're doing is taking advantage of the existing dem- democratic channels for students to have a say in how the university is run. And, you know, this is, <laughs> this is another kind of tool, the nonprofit system. Like, historically, students have been very, very disruptive and led so many social movements, like thinking about what happened during the Vietnam War and civil rights movement in the United States and how universities were just hotbeds for all the student activism and they were very influential. So one of the legacies is that is like, well, we'll put in this democratic channel so that they can have their say. And and this is <laughs> this just goes to show once that kind of stuff becomes institutionalized, it tends to lose its teeth in a way. So what happens is with the student unions union here at my university at least, is that if you get fifty, if you get fifty votes in favor of your policy suggestion, then it has to be debated by the student union. If you get 200, then I think you you have a little bit more sway. And then if you have 400, which has never been achieved by any other student campaign, it's automatic policy change subject to the board of trustees approval. My students were able to manage 467 votes. Un, unparalleled. The Like the the most recent, or sorry, the only other vote that actually even compared with that was less than half of that. That's so extraordinary. It's, yeah, it's historic and is extraordinary. And my students, bless them, I'm so proud of them because when the first when the vote first came out, they only had two weeks, and this was right before winter break. So really, they only had a week and a half, and only about fifty people initially voted because nobody knows about it. So they said, "Well, okay, we're not going to let this just go to nothing." So they went to the library every day, just a group. Sometimes it's just two of them. And they went and stayed hours approaching students one by one and explaining the campaign and asking them if they would vote on the spot. And they brought it up to the vote to, to 467, historic and extraordinary. So then it should have just been a policy change, just as, you know, give it a stamp and like move on. And by the way, this is not novel. The, the uh, University of Sterling had already um, won. Those students already won and they've already switched to trans, started transitioning then there's a London School of Economics just an hour down the road from us, and they also had had one, um, albeit it was only about 50% transition that they were able to win. But basically, this said, but you should now have all student union facilities should go plant-based within two years. And that covers quite a lot of restaurants and catering on campus, a significant amount. So anyway, uh, that was back in December. As we're recording this, it's middle of March the next year, and cricket, cricket. So they were asked to come and give a brief presentation to the board of trustees um, in late February. And from what I can gather, they're claiming that this is not democratic, that it's biased, that we got all of our environmental cronies to come in and, um, you know, 
uh, rig, rig the vote. And it's, it's just so, it's really, really demoralizing because then on the other hand, you have the University of Kent just launched last week its Right to Food campaign and billing itself as a flagship university for food justice, while it, on the other hand, is silencing students, student-led campaign to do what the university has been dragging its feet to do for years. And it, it's just ridiculous. So it just goes to show, and, this, and I teach environmental politics, and we spend a whole week on the vacuousness that is sustainability rhetoric. And I think this is a prime example of this. I don't want to be discouraging because it hasn't been voted completely down yet. They may give us an alternative. But for instance, a suggestion, maybe maybe have a second vote, which seems pretty silly. It's like It seems like they want to have a, keep us voting until they get the vote they want. <laughs> but we'll see. But I think, you know, like I said, other universities, like since then, the University of Cambridge has won. So I think that um, really what's going to happen is the University of Kent is going to be embarrassed by claiming to be a sustainable campus and dragging its feet and actually reneging on the democratic channels that they promised to students, uh, made available to students. So that's what's happening there on my neck of the woods. Well, I, I'm so glad you shared that with us because it's, uh, it's a fascinating um, situation. And I certainly hope that it gets resolved in the favor of the students who have 467 students who voted for this. Yeah. That's a that's an incredible accomplishment. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, I really hope it works out. So thanks again for sharing that. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. I'm absolutely grateful for your time. Thank you. It was a real delight. I love talking about this subject. It it shows. Loved it as well. (laughs) Thanks again. Cheers. My hope for this episode is it normalizes the existence of factionalism to the extent those differences serve as a catalyst for each of us to think critically about who's speaking about veganism, what their agenda might be, and what exactly they're saying about veganism, the animals, advocacy, or even new vegan products. And during these types of discussions, I like to keep in mind something I've talked about in the book too. Are we compromising down? Are we using the injustice of animal use as a vehicle to appease non-vegans? If that's the case, then there's scope for a critique. And mind you, I don't mean shouting matches and comments and posts on social media. If we were on the receiving end of the injustice, we'd want someone to make a sound and reasoned case on our behalf. So let's be that sound and reasoned voice alongside the animals, too. Next time, we'll talk with Tracy Katoff and Joshua Katcher, who are researching the fashion industry as a case study of large-scale shifts towards supply chains without animals. We burn things up when we go around. We speak that's it from me, Emmy Lees. Thank you for listening. I'll post a transcript in due course on our website, thinklikeavegan.com. Remember, you can get in touch by email at thinklikeaveganbook at gmail.com or find Think Like a Vegan on social media. You can find me, more of my work and my upcoming events at emmysgoodeating.com and on social media. Subscribe to this podcast, share it with others, and leave us a review. And you can buy Think Like a Vegan anywhere you buy books and audiobooks or request it from your local library. 
Production credit goes to Jim Moore of Bloody Vegans Productions. Theme music provided by Jenny Moore's Mystic Business from the eponymous album. The opening tune is Flashback, and we close with Tear Things Up. The interval music is by Matthew Gerstenberger, a.k.a. Seismicity, on SoundCloud. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!